blue jeans, ses bousons de cuir. Tu vas rejoindre les copains. Si tu ne vois pas, qu'est-ce qu'ils vont dire quand tu les verras demain? En blue jeans, ses bousons de cuir. Hello, and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new film on Netflix from, uh, it's the directorial co-debut of Daniel Kaluuya, and that film is called The Kitchen, a dystopian sci-fi film that takes place in 2040 London in the last social housing unit uh, that still exists in that country in this future. Uh, But first, we're going to be checking out a January release that we very nearly missed, and Daniel, this is one that I saw the trailer for uh, during a press screening in December that you were not able to make, and I immediately texted you and said, hey, here's, here's the thing we're going to be reviewing in January. We didn't quite make it. It's already February, but uh, it's been a busy month for us. But we are still going to check out The Beekeeper. You're a blessing, Mr. Clay. This place was crabgrass and weeds, and you brought it back to life. Mrs. Parker and I were friends. She was like family. She was the only person who ever took care of me. I just got a message saying that there's a problem with my computer. Yes, ma'am, we got this. Yesterday, she shot herself. This is private property. Do you know what they do here? Scamming the weakest in our society? Buddy, I'm counting to three. One, two, three. There, I did it for you. No, you can't take it. No, you can't. I'm going to burn this place to the ground. No, you can't. Will you stomp his ass out? You're telling me one man did this. The only thing you know is he's a beekeeper. A beekeeper, a beekeeper? Well, that's not good. Beekeepers is a special program outside the chain of command. I protect the hive. When the system is out of balance, I correct it. We have laws for these things. Until they fail, then you have me. My fingers, they cut them off. Oh, what the fuck, bro? That was from the trailer of The Beekeeper, the new film from director David Ayer. That is director of The Suicide Squad, not the good one. And uh, written by Kurt Wimmer, Kurt Wimmer of such films as Law Abiding Citizen from 2009, the Gerard Butler and Jamie Foxx uh, revenge thrower, which Daniel, I have to say, I did not mention this on uh, group chat while we were uh, uh, watch partying this one, but... Uh, this one reminded me a lot of Law Abiding Citizen in ways that I will get into uh, once we once we start reviewing it. But uh, he is also the writer of the movie Equilibrium, which uh, introduced the world to gun kata, which was Christian Bale doing martial arts and uh, and guns every which way. So this guy's got a rich body of work when it comes to over the top action thrillers. And when he's taking on what is essentially and I dare say unapologetically a John Wick knockoff. There's a little bit of a vibe here of, does this movie do enough to differentiate itself? And then there's also a vibe of, well, if we were going to do a John Wick knockoff, we had to get Kurt Wimmer involved eventually, because if there's anybody who can write ridiculous action uh, as well as this guy, I've not uh, seen him yet. So, Daniel, uh, what did you think of this film, which stars Jason Statham as Adam Clay, the titular beekeeper who uh, tends to the hive? And it's all just an extended metaphor for the whole of society functioning well. And when some people are trying to make society not function so well, like, for instance, when they're running a multi-million dollar call center to scam senior citizens out of their uh, life savings through uh, fairly realistically depicted cybercrime, albeit with a bit more of a boiler room and MC vibe to it. What he does is uh, go in and burn the building to the ground. Now, I'm not revealing anything that's not the first 30 seconds of the trailer, but that is essentially what happens for the rest of this film. It is Adam Clay going on a vigilante rampage against this empire of crime, which goes all the way to the top in the corridors of power. So, Daniel, I am curious, to what extent did this meet your expectations of a January action thriller? Well, I mean, I saw the trailer, which I normally don't do, uh, so it, it met those expectations. But boy, I haven't seen a bigger knockoff in a, in a while. I mean, that was it was trying so hard to be John Wick and so hard to be the Kingsman. I'm going to admit something here. Jason Statham is more charismatic than Keanu Reeves. I think it's okay to to uh, to acknowledge that. He's... Now that said, I can at least tell you a thing or two about John Wick the character. Adam Clay feels like a total fucking cipher to me. He's just Jason Statham. Well, correct. Yeah, and also I guess reminding me a bit of the Equalizer. 
uh, with Denzel, except like not not as uh, creative in the combat. Yeah, we didn't review Equalizer three, but have you? Uh, did you see the third Equalizer film? No, I I only saw the first one with you. Uh, we actually reviewed the second one as well on the podcast, it, but uh, it meant nothing it's been to a while. Me. <laughs> They're not super memorable. The second one has an, an extended sequence taking place during a hurricane. Oh, okay, um, that the was third, the second one. I thought that was the first one. That was the second one. The first one had an extended sequence at a hardware store where he kills a bunch of people with a nail gun. They are both they're both very fun movies. The third one was shot for tax purposes in a small town in Italy uh, on the coast. It's gorgeous. It's the same reason that a whole season of White Lotus exists. It is absolutely worth checking out. And I would say it met my expectations to the same degree as this film. This film was not very creative like in terms of the combat and what like there was like one character I liked like one side character. I thought Adam Clay was a, was. I mean, I like Statham, but I, I felt like the character was pretty boring. Uh, I, I felt like there's really nothing to him. Yeah, yeah the, I thought the there was there was enough B metaphors where I felt like it would have been funnier if all the B metaphors were wrong. Like if Adam Clay just gave wrong B facts, and then people were like, "But that's not true," and then he kills them. I thought that would have been funnier. <laughs> So we have Emmy Raver Lampman as a, as FBI Special Agent Verona Parker, who is, I dare say, the principal antagonist to Adam Clay, but she's not really, I mean, the antagonists are the, are the scammers. She's just the dumb FBI agent who is there to get in the way of him finding and vigilante murdering the bad guys. I did not begrudge Emmy Raver Lampman's performance here. You know, FBI agents being classic dumb guys and kind of doing like 1980s detective uh, shit paper pushing like in a way that just does not feel like it's actually likely to be what the real FBI does. Like I know the federal government lives in the past. I know they've got a lot of typewriters still in operation at the DOD, but like I I just don't believe that the FBI operates in the way depicted in this film. And that is not a deal breaker here. We had some decent banter between her and Bobby uh, Nadiri, who played her partner, Special Agent Matt Wiley. Every agent in this film is special, Daniel. And uh, they... And, and Matt Wiley is basically just the wisecracking, you know, this is uh, just kind of just kind of shooting holes in her theory. And and uh, and Agent Parker, she's just kind of busting out random B facts. There's just a B book sitting around FBI headquarters and she starts reading about this notion of the uh, what was it? The Queen Slayer and the Queen Slayer will rise up and kill the queen bee if she's producing the wrong kind of offspring. Now, this incel right wing metaphor notwithstanding I dare say she was out of her mind with this metaphor. Am I am I correct in reading this here? I'm pretty sure that's an incorrect B fact. Yes. I don't think that that's even true, but also it was just it was just very bad as an extended metaphor here. Like this guy did not specifically care about anyone about murdering anyone specific. He just wanted the bad guys to stop being bad. In fact, he lets a lot of them go. He just kind of makes an example out of the worst of them and then sends the rest of them running and then blows up whatever building they were in. So it's an interesting vibe that he goes for. He seems to not be going for maximal body count, which as we learn as we meet additional members of the beekeepers organization, apparently is not an ethos they all share. We've also got Wallace Westwild. Now, everybody in this movie has an amazing name. Uh, Derek Danforth is played by Josh uh, Hutcherson, and Wallace Westwild is played by Jeremy Irons. Now, this is Josh Hutcherson from the Hunger Games franchise, and this is Jeremy Irons, who is Jeremy motherfucking Irons, uh, the villain from Die Hard 3, the charismatic, dripping with sarcasm British actor who played Scar in The Lion King. Like, this guy has an iconic voice, and I can tell you, Daniel... You you tell me about this movie doing something unexpected because it it's not a long list, but Jeremy Irons and Josh Hutcherson developing buddy chemistry as as uh, un- unlikely mismatched villains slash vague father and son pairing was really not expecting that those two on screen together were actually kind of magnetic. The I mean the only thing I liked about the film was Jeremy Irons because he is Humbert Humbert to me uh, from Alita. You're you're speaking of the actual audiobook narrator of Lolita that you listened uh-huh. to recently. Correct. Okay. That is a very specific reference. Now, uh, Josh Hutcherson is playing Derek Danforth. Now, he is the CEO of Danforth Enterprises, um, and he is involved. He's kind of the secret uh, mastermind behind all of these villainous call centers. Now, he is essentially a coke-addled tech bro. He says bro a lot. He's way into crypto. In fact, they did a very good job of making every one of the douche bros in this film way into crypto. One guy literally plugs his his vast store of NFTs right before getting murdered. It's really something to see. Um, but uh, 
essentially what we have here is, uh, you know, instead of killing his puppy, they kill his nice old lady neighbor, played by, by Felicia Rashad. Um, and they and the way that they kill her is by doing this elaborate scam on her, which which results in all of her bank accounts being emptied, her life insurance policy being uh, being wiped out, and also a charitable, like an education kids charity uh, account that she controls, which has $2 million in it, also being wiped out. Um, and this is apparently one of their one of their smaller call centers. They've got even bigger ones that deal with even bigger uh, dollar values and ripping people off. So, yeah, Daniel, we've got uh, we've got just tens of millions of baby boomers going into retirement and still holding on to vast sums of wealth. And we've got a we've got an absolute renaissance in AI generated fake voices going on right now. There's no way that's going to bite us in the ass, is it? Just I think we're fine. I mean, we also got. Um musk uh putting things into people's brains and we're apparently we're cool with that so i'm I'm sure everything's gonna be fine indeed um so the beekeepers are meant to they're they are essentially as a trope they are uh, we 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 get a beautiful explanation from former cia director wallace westwild uh jeremy irons of what the beekeepers are and they are basically it's a trope we've seen before, dude. You compared them to the Kingsmen. Uh, they've been there since the beginning, and they were put in charge by, you know, whoever, whatever monarch was in charge then. And they exist outside the chain of command. They exist outside the Constitution. They are apparently an American agency. Um, but other than that, like, we're talking Section 31. We're talking the fucking Knights Templar here. We're talking a trope of the secret do-gooder force that operates behind the scenes, which we desperately wish exist. Uh, it's basically the same thing as the Justice League. It's just making things up. It's fine. It's fine. We can we can we can vibe with this, but it needs to be clear what purpose they serve and how they function. And as soon as we meet the current beekeeper, it is not at all clear to me how well functioning this organization is. Would that be fair to say? They sound like kingsmen, but they act like mercenaries. Yeah, they act like mercenaries, and also it's sort of a colorful rogues gallery. I made the Justice League comparison here, but they're more like the Evil League of Evil. Like they're all kind of ridiculous. It's fairly clear that Suicide Squad director David Ayer brought some of his uh, his co- his costumed cartoon villain expertise to bear on this, because these people are ridiculous. We've got Taylor James as Lazarus, a South African merc. Uh, we have Sophia Feliciano as Kelly Crane. These are all comic book names, and she's just a psychopath with a machine gun, um, and uh, just. Way over the top and extra with the with the guns and the do. Uh, we've also got, uh, and this guy is not part of the beekeepers organization, but we've got Rico Anzalone who is uh, running one of the call centers, played by uh, by Enzo Salenti. And this guy literally wore a suit jacket that said "Goat," you know, greatest of all time on the back of it. He's another one of these MC slinging uh, uh, salesmen trying to running running a call center to rip people off, but a bit more of a mob vibe here. So. We basically got the ragtag band of heroes versus the ragtag band of villains, and it all feels just a bit cartoony. And I don't know, if this were any longer than an hour and 45 minutes, I might have lost patience with it. But it did not attempt to make me take that lore seriously at all. And that is the one area in which I think it may have done an all right job here, because the John Wick movies have reached epic status. You know, the first movie was just a guy going on a rampage because his dog got killed, and that was that was all well and good. They just got bigger and badder and longer and more elaborate, and I love the lore of the John Wick franchise. But those movies are fucking three hours long now, and you really got to be ready to sit down and settle in for an, for an endless, honestly exhausting action epic to watch those. I dare say, Daniel, John Wick 4 was almost too much for me. I've only seen the first two John Wick movies. I, I feel like I, I... Oh, you should see the third. It's fantastic. It's pretty much the same stuff. There's gunplay, there's it lore, whatever. This movie was beat for beat, John Wick 1, just without the cool gunplay. There's the nice old lady is the dog who dies. Um, the shit heel, uh, you know, Scion King's charge is the same as the Russian mafia son who killed the dog. Yep. Uh, you have the experienced, wizened old uh, ultra villain who's Jeremy Irons in this movie. Was, you know, it, it, it's the same thing and it's fine, but at the same time, I was like, well, what else are you going to give me? I want incorrect beef hacks. I wanted, I wanted, I guess, a little bit more, I don't know, maybe maturity from it. I guess it seemed very silly because you have the scams, which are pretty well done at first. But what about the gift card scam? That's the one I'm most 
uh, most familiar with, <laughs> right? Like, no, no, you need to go get a gift card, like an Apple gift card, and then give me the numbers on it. Yeah, I mean, what they did here was they took the details of actual scams and they merged it with the, with the aesthetic of like a Glengarry Glen yeah, Ross or Winter Room. And they were not going for accuracy here. They were going for an entertaining spectacle. The idea of these people operating inside of a $30 million office building instead of from either an assortment of rented call centers in non-extradition treaty countries with a, with a, a broadband connection and uh, maybe a reliable elect- electrical grid uh, in the vicinity, or just operating through an assortment of proxies and IP telephony services from whatever random computer somebody's running from home. But that's not entertaining. That's not visually interesting. I'll tell you what's visually interesting is a guy uh, is a guy walking up to a building, just a big glass and steel corporate office building, meeting a couple of goons who and Daniel, it's only ever goons that say we don't know nothing about that. If they say they don't know nothing about that, they're mobbed up and it's okay to murder them summarily right then and there. Um and then go in and uh, and just light the whole building on fire. It was not. It, it was farcical, and that was the way in which it reminded me the most of Kurt Wimmer's previous script, Law Abiding Citizen, which is also about a guy going going off on a uh, justice system that failed him and his family, who got murdered. He his family got murdered. He didn't get murdered, uh, and it's him just kind of going through and summarily executing everybody who was involved in that: the judges, the lawyers, everybody. And he does it through these really elaborate and creative gadget uh, kind of moves, as Jamie Foxx, the prosecutor, and, and a bunch of cops are trying to catch him. And and uh, it's very entertaining in the same way as this movie, but at no point does it really even pretend to take place in the real world. And I think that's OK, as long as a movie maintains its sense of disbelief there. This guy lights people on fire with honey like it's ridiculous. But think of how much more fun this would be if instead of him going to that make believe giant call center building with the goons outside, he goes to a shitty call center in, in Lagos, Nigeria. And he was waste everybody and people outside are like, is he committing a hate crime? What's going on? Doesn't sound much more entertaining than what we watched. But I, I will say I would split the difference and see the Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back version of this where they go to a bunch of individual Internet commenters houses and individually kick their asses for saying shit about them on the Internet. Um, it seems like that's a service that the inter- that the world and the Internet writ large could use a bit more of. Um, so. But Daniel, I don't know that there's much more to say about this. Like we could talk about the lore, we could talk about what it all adds up to. Whatever version of this going all the way to the top that you are imagining, that's exactly what happens. This movie does not bring a lot of surprises to the table, but I will say I was solidly entertained all the way through this. Um, you say this movie was not all that creative with the action, and I generally agree with that. I think all of the gunplay, knife play, and uh, and martial arts play is just better in John Wick. It, it, it just is. I'm sorry, but there were still some mildly interesting things in this. He does randomly saw guy's uh, fingers off and uh you know he attaches him to the attaches that self-same guy to the back of a pickup truck and drives him off a bridge there were a few elaborate set pieces there um but yeah by and large it was basically just a whole bunch of ass kicking and shooting and you know what that can carry you through for an hour and 45 minutes sometimes this is a two drink movie fair enough was that literally what it was yes. for you? <laughs> it was fine i believe i had a glass of pinot noir while i was watching it but uh, i dare say that was classier than this movie deserved <laughs> Even with Jeremy Irons. I would say it's it's not funny enough to be a comedy. It's not a serious enough action movie to be a really like, high-end action movie. And the lore is not comprehensive or silly enough to be that entertaining. So this movie's very meh all around. Yeah. Yeah, I think calling it calling it meh or, uh, or mid, as the kids say, mid. is fair. But there were enough... There were enough individual details of it that I enjoyed. Josh Hutcherson is genuinely delightful in this movie. I thought he was great. Um, just gets more and more ridiculous, does more and more drugs, commits more and more random acts of violence. Really, it was quite a transformation for this actor. I've not seen him play. I, I've, I've seen him do stuff like this before. He was in this utterly depraved movie called Detention from uh, director Joseph Kahn, but uh, depraved is not really his brand. He seems a bit more straight-laced than this, so it was nice to see him cut loose a little bit. Jeremy Irons was a lot of fun. Um, Felicia Rashad, I dare say, they did not even attempt to make a relationship seem realistic between these two. She was given a short shrift as the puppy in John Wick, so not much to say about her, unfortunately. Yeah, this movie had enough interesting characters and moments and set pieces in it that I, I do find myself recommending it in the end, even knowing that when I go to tally up the Glennies at the end of this year, I'm going to be like, oh yeah, that movie. Got nothing to say about that. You don't think it's going to make top 10? You, you have, Probably you have not. that high hopes for 2024? 
it could be a thoroughly mid-year, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, there there is a chance of Donald Trump being re-elected president, so could be we won't even get yeah, what kind of It'll be the last year of cinema. Yeah, could be. Well, that was The Beekeeper, which is available on premium VOD right now. And now on to a review of The Kitchen. Good morning. This is The Lord Kitchen, live and direct. Getting out of this place. It's all home. She gets real. Saving myself. So where do you live? Kitchen. Really like what it tastes like. Yeah. Ain't safe by yourself. What's your name? You ain't built like them. I haven't got any works to go. What's he to you? Friend of mine. Some friend. You gotta go. What's happening? I don't know what it's like, right? It's just war. That was from the trailer of The Kitchen, the new film from co-writer and co-director Daniel Kaluuya, and he is the and this is the first time this actor, uh, best known for for such films as Get Out and Widows, has ever screenwritten or directed a feature. Now he has a co-director on here, Keyboy Tavares, and he also has a co-writer, Joe Murtaugh. And this film takes place in 2040 in London, and it takes place in the titular housing block, The Kitchen, which is uh, social housing or a housing estate, as they are known in the UK. Daniel, you are familiar with this concept in the UK. Yes. Basically, the idea behind social housing is it is run by it is run by a local government council, generally speaking, and so there's a there's a local local city council or village council that is in some way responsible for maintaining the building uh, with funding that they receive from the national government. is uh, It's way more complicated than that in practice, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in it, but that is the basic uh, the basic idea, as I understand it. Um, They. such places have a reputation, at least as far as I've heard them referred to in British popular culture and seen expressed in British popular culture as being kind of rough places, uh, crime addled, that sort of thing. But also uh, often the uh, the setting of films that are about uh, the about uh, people who are less well off, people who are kind of on the fringes of society, uh, people who are kind of being left behind by society writ large. Uh, we've seen such films as I, Daniel Blake, which we reviewed here on the podcast. We've also seen uh, films like Attack the Block, where a housing block is basically just used as a backdrop for a genre story or some or a story about something else entirely. And the basic idea is it's just a whole lot of people packed into one location here who are uh, in who are otherwise um, dependent on the well, the good functioning of that uh, of that location uh, to be able to live their lives. And um, what we have here instead is a future in which social housing has been defunded to a degree that doesn't even exist now, and there's only one of these housing blocks left in London. And as we see it in the film, it takes place in a, and I dare say, one of the most harrowing and realistically rendered versions of the near future that I've seen. AR and VR technologies are everywhere. Drones are everywhere. Facial recognition and facial tracking is everywhere. Really shitty dehumanizing AI is everywhere. It really does not seem like a pleasant place to be no matter which part of the socioeconomic strata that you live in, there's just a level of automated dehumanization going on here that I don't think I've ever seen depicted in film to this degree before. Um, we'll get into uh, into the principal cast here in a moment. The, uh, the two main characters are Izzy uh, or Isaac, played by Kane Robinson, who works at a... Uh, I dare say this is grief as a service. Uh, this is a funeral uh, provider. They've got rented chapels, and they convert your loved one's ashes into a plant, which you can plant as long as you pay rent for the dead. It's just another way to rip people off, even after they're in the grave. And it just kind of feels like par for the course here, right? They turn people into plants. I don't know why that wasn't more of a, a bigger deal in the film. You've seen versions of this for sale even now, the idea of turning people into uh, either covering people in mushroom spores and having them uh, sort of grow into a natural like uh, compost from there, or uh, maybe combining different concepts here. Um, there are also uh, versions of it where you end up sort of planting a tree over someone's grave, essentially, or you, you sort of cover them in nutrients and manure, and they end up growing a tree where their grave was. Like There have been versions of this concept before. This is just the most slick and monetized, and I dare say clearly mendacious version of what we've ever seen, because 
We don't ever fully find out what happens to the planted trees, but I get the feeling they just get dumped out the back when they're done collecting rent from the uh, from the grieving families. But we never really get confirmation on that. A lot of the dystopian details of this world that we live in, we don't get an explanation for them because that is basically the lived reality of the people in here is just they they live in a they live in a housing block where every moment that they spend in there Every moment that they've been in there their entire lives, they've basically existed as a crime. They've existed as as being at odds with, with the rest of, of civilization. And every once in a while, civilization just busts in there and arrests a bunch of them and brutalizes a bunch of them for no reason. Um, and we only get the barest bones of context of what is going on there. So the film really puts you in the shoes of the people there that they don't know exactly what their relationship is with the rest of society. They just know that it was not built for them, and they know that it has no desire for them to continue participating in it. And that was the vibe that really was overwhelming throughout this film and, and really worked quite well. Uh, the other principal cast member is, Je- is Jediah Bannerman as Benji, who is this uh, this child who gets um, who uh, becomes an orphan when his mother dies and ends up uh, passing through the uh, funeral uh, ar- arrangements at Izzy's workplace. And for whatever reason, Izzy takes some interest in Benji. He had some prior relationship or acquaintance with uh, Benji's mom, although he's very cagey as to what the nature of that relationship is. And uh, and he ends up uh, sort of taking this kid on as a protege. And that's basically the rest of the movie is the, uh, is the two of them kind of navigating what it's like to live in this place where life is hard and life is complicated, but life is really just not built for you to live in it. And uh, so, Daniel, I'm curious, what did you uh, what did you think of this film? What did you think of its world building? What did you think of its storytelling? I found a lot of it underwhelming, to be honest. Uh, the way you've painted the picture here is very accurate. I just wanted more context for things. What's happened to the NHS? Has the UK gone full ANCAP? Like, what's going on here? Uh, why is this one particular housing complex the last one left? Why is it like, like I had a lot more questions, right? I had questions about how the tech was being used, why people were being turned into plants. Uh, like I, I know, I know the real reason, but like I, I, I had more questions. Like obviously, the relationship between uh, Beijing Izzy is clear as day from the get go, even though they never actually reveal it. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because the relationship between Izzy and Benji is, yeah. I would say, above all, whatever relationship they choose, because no responsibility is being imposed on Izzy that he is not willing to take on himself. We know what the relationship is. He is. this kid's father? Yes. Like that's not a, like that's not a spoiler because we don't get a definitive answer to that question. It's a hundred percent true. But it's also unclear that it will ever be possible to. Prove that he's this kid's father because, as you say, there's clearly no NHS in this country anymore. That's a bigger deal than this housing complex going away. Well, uh, we have uh, we have the voice of Free Kitchen, and that is a fellow named Lord Kitchener, which I'm pretty sure has uh, never been used as a name for anything else in history. Uh, it's a brand Daniel, new name. You want to go explain for me uh, wh- who who or what was Lord Kitchener? I know it had something to do with uh, with an old British aristocrat who was used as a recruiting face in World War One. Is that basically the gist of it? Uh, Kitchener was an old general, and I. If I recall correctly, he was primarily involved, and I'm probably wrong, but uh, in the Boer War in Africa. That is what I found when I skimmed his Wikipedia page, but apparently he was also used as a recruitment campaign in World War One. Lord Kitchener Wants You, uh, which which actually was the forerunner to Uncle Sam Wants You uh, in the United States, because if there's one thing we love doing in, in the U.S., it's ripping off the U.K. Well, yeah, you ripped us off by uh, you know declaring your independence, so... And I'm sorry, did you just refer to the UK as us? We're going to come back to that. But so we have uh, we have Ian Wright, uh, who is actually an old timey radio announcer um, from who, who's done like who's been doing like uh, like football and rugby announcements uh, since the 1960s playing Lord Kitchener. So there's a reason why that guy seemed so at home uh, on pirate radio within this place, just kind of acting as the voice of the people because uh, he's got a lot of experience in real life doing that. Yeah, he's a DJ. Like he's the DJ of, of Kitchen and he's the PR guy. I'm going to push back on you a little bit here, Daniel. I I am with you in that I wanted more context, but we've seen versions of that movie. We've seen versions of the movie where we get all the context and we're, and we're just like, in the future, the world united and and uh, and developed this technology and it instantly changed everybody's uh, lives. And I... I think the reason why I enjoyed that the more the greater ambiguity in this film was because... I think it felt more like the lived chaos of real life. And it's rare for a sci-fi movie to really capture that. Um, 
in the same ways as we watch the slow, gradual societal decay of every system that exists in this country here, you know, when I was a kid, you could go to the doctor and you could complain about multiple ailments at the same time. Now, everything, you know, every doctor is part of a fucking private equity uh, portfolio, and they make it damn clear that you are allowed to make one complaint. And if there's anything else wrong with your body, sorry, we got to collect another fucking copay for that. Unless you're doing preventative care, in which case we can do the prescribed list of things that we will do to you, but only during preventative preventative care. Um, that's just a very minor example, but we can, but you and I can think of lots of other ways in which every system that has existed since we were kids has gotten a little bit shittier, or a little bit harder to navigate. And I think that taking that reality and transposing it into the future requires more world building, not less. It's not as if the answers to those contextual questions don't exist. It's just that we weren't privy to them. And for the people that were in there, that were in this apartment block who were navigating this day by day, those details are not particularly relevant to them. And that was what played through for me. It doesn't matter why or how society became this way. It doesn't matter why the police drones are circling outside and you can hear their hum 24 hours a day. It just matters that they're there. And it just matters that they're going to run facial recognition on you, probably generate some warrants for you. And eventually when the cops bust in down below, once they're done clubbing everybody who happens to be on the lower floors, they're probably going to sort through them and figure out which ones of them they can throw, they can, they can put charges on. So in that way, uh, of course, you know, it's been said that dystopian sci-fi is just uh, stuff that happens to minorities now happening to white people in the future. And I don't think I think this movie in some ways subverts that trope and says, hey, yes, some of this is happening right now. But here is the even shittier, more technologically infused version that can happen in the future. And I'm curious what you think of that aspect of it as gradual lived decaying reality. I mean, that's all well and good. I'm just saying I felt bored. I don't need to have like the president is here what's going on or or a big speech or anything like that but i i like context because i want to care about the outcomes i didn't care about the outcomes in this film i didn't care about it benji's bike you know although uh, it was nice to get a bike i guess uh i i didn't care about izzy getting out because izzy didn't it it didn't really seem to matter uh if izzy left or not you know, because he could have left at any time, but he stayed because of Benji, right? Why are the police entering there? Why are they attacking people? Well, because they're the baddies, right? Well, we saw a better yeah. version of this film with the Frank movie. Uh, I was going to ask how you think this movie compares to Athena, but I dare say we did not get any more context in Athena than we got here. We got a little bit more context. There's more context with Athena. There was a clear inciting incident in Athena, whereas the inciting incident here was just everyday reality. And I get that may be less satisfying, but Athena was already surrounded by cops and was already going through some significant civil unrest at the beginning of that film, which was never explained. But of course, because we saw basically a raid on a police uh, precinct, that is the direct event that the police are responding to for the rest of that film. And that is the that is the direct event that fuels the the riot and chaos that happens for the rest of that film. This was more like just you don't get to know what's going on. You just get to get get smacked around by it every once in a while and i can see i can understand being bored by that this is not a pleasant film to watch i, I dare say i won't be watching it again but it did feel like real life and i i have to give it uh, give it some credit for that um it was not a but I, i'm with you athena was a more entertaining movie for sure but uh i just think about the pieces of this that i related to here is he exploring fatherhood with benji and of course that is what he's exploring here whether he acknowledges his parentage or not 100 percent the father whether he's even sure of his parentage or not. But there was an amazing moment there. There's an interesting continuum going on with his interactions with Benji, where he is paying forward both his own cynicism and his own kindness at the same time. He's telling this child, who he is actively taking care of, that you're on your own. They're going to come and take everything from you. Get used to it. That's just the way the world is. And here he is. And here is this community looking out for each other. We hear Lord Kitchener at the beginning guiding people through essentially a food robbery because they are all starving and uh, and telling them, hey, the food's coming in over here. Only go if you need it. I mean, they, they are they are doing full on uh, populist communism in this uh, this building, but with the tiny the tiny pile of resources that they have access to. That's where I found the details here. It was in the ways they reacted to the world. There's a moment where Benji is remarking on this like kitschy little hula dancer lamp that is on uh, that is on Izzy's desk, 
and he's he's mind blown by it. It's like he's not seen anything like that before. It's like this world is so polished and sterile outside of their housing block, um, and all the uh, you know all the food they eat is kind of shitty and the same. All of the uh, all all of the stuff they get is like when they go to get haircuts. Uh, like it's basically like a, like a video game character selection screen. It's doing it's doing augmented reality like holography over your face so you can see what different hairstyles it gives you. We never actually see the uh, barber, I guess, making his hair longer, which was apparently an option there, but uh, we do get to see what he would look like with all these different hairdos but he's blown away by just the fact that somebody made this lamp with like real fabric on it and like little uh little you know hula who would answer kind of grass skirt going on there and it shakes and then the whole thing shakes and like the ways the ways in which the springs move against each other um and that you know that it's not so mind-blowing that like we have that same nostalgic relationship with with technology that is no longer relevant here but like I saw many reactions like that. Many, many instances of people just kind of saying, oh, no, this is how we react to this fucked up world that we're in. And we find these little moments of, of, of oddity or levity or something to comment on. And in those ways, I felt like I was getting answers, even though we didn't really get a lot of specificity there. I don't know. I hear what you're saying. And I don't, I don't 100% disagree. I hate the film, right? I just felt like I was waiting for the other shoe to drop and it never dropped. And then we got to the end and I was like, oh, okay, we're just going to end it with more ambiguity. Fine. Uh, what, what are we really saying in this film, right? I guess technology is bad um social housing is good <laughs> i mean uh, i i would i would submit that part of what the uh part of what the film is showing us is um a a shittier uh but still um kind of tied to class distinctions kind of future um and those class distinctions were not cleanly divided by race and of course that is not how it is in the uk to the same degree that it is in the u.s we have had much more institutionalized racism here of course there's plenty of that in the uk as well. uh, no there's not they there was settled much, that there was remember. much more redlining there was much more key, there was much more segregation by neighborhoods no, um, no but I... in this film we see we see uh most most of the principal cast of this film is black and we see people who are poor and Living in the in the housing estate, who are black, and we see people who are who are middle class and even wealthy, who are who are black as well. And it's interesting to see. Uh, and of course, we see people of all, of all different races that are middle class and uh, and upper class as well. But we see them reacting to. Uh, there's a moment where Izzy is coming in to uh, uh, to basically talk to the AI of a of a fancier apartment building. And we, we don't need to get into the details here. But at one point, the AI kind of tone polices him. It was really something to see. There's no need to raise your voice. And we see all these people literally wearing frills uh, like it's pre-revolutionary France again, uh, reacting to this, this, this lower class rogue who had the audacity to raise his voice and get annoyed at the Cylon in the computer. And well, hey, you, I, I tell you, dude, as somebody who works in tech, it, it was really something to think of of those things being used for dehumanization, which doesn't even require you to hire one of those people to give somebody the shitty dehumanizing message on your behalf. You don't even have to pay somebody's salary to do that anymore. You don't even have to pretend to deal with the poor anymore. You can just have the computers do it for you. Well, hey, that, you can that's dismiss them as a service. Businesses do that all the time. McDonald's has kiosks where you don't have to interact with somebody or your food. Look, uh, when somebody yells at Alexa, don't you kind of judge them a little bit? Like, why are you yelling at the robot? <laughs> like, just give a better prompt. Yeah, I don't know, dude. I mean, th there were a number of moments in this film that really hit me in the in in the way of what is our relationship with with technology and how does it dehumanize us and disconnect us from each other and disconnect us from the from the very real plight of all the people around us i mean there is a moment where in this film where a character changes the channel of his outside window and prior to that moment we thought he just had this glorious cyberpunk cityscape of london and we eventually learn that that cyberpunk cityscape is fake because, of course, it is. He can change it to a different version of that. He can change the weather if he wants to. But when we see the actual skyline of actual London, it's in a moment where there's where some some major shit has gone down. The residents of the kitchen are dealing with it through through the shared culture and language that they have around grief, which is they're banging pots together to alert each other of police raids. And when the when when they're done and they're and they're counting their dead, they are lighting little rolls of paper on fire and holding them out the window and we see an entire side of the building with with these uh, these little these little torches these little improvised torches just hanging out there and then we pan out and what do we see 
empty tower block after empty tower block, all of them covered in cranes. They're building more housing, but it's not for these people. These people need to leave. And it's because because these people are on private property that belongs to somebody else because it belonged to somebody else the moment they were born. Because if you're poor, we got no use for you in the city, except when we need to complain about how nobody wants to work anymore. Um, uh, all this movie told me was that Rishi Sunak's Rwanda plan just never actually happened. Uh, which is really, I don't uh, know what you're referring That is a very specific reference, which, and I have to say it was lost on me. Tell me about it. I know who Rishi is, of course. But, uh, uh, you're a true prime minister. Um, <laughs> so the UK has this plan that they've worked out with Rwanda where they're going to take immigrants they don't want and they're going to send them to Rwanda. So they pay Rwanda to fly them out there. Rwanda gets to choose who they keep and then make deport the rest. <laughs> wow. I don't, I've never understood why Rwanda. Why not send people to Australia? The whole point of Australia is that it's a prison colony. Send the people you don't want there. It's a land of despair and death. Well, I'll have you know, Australia has uh, Australia may be part of the Commonwealth, but they've definitely learned all of those tricks as well. They've got entire islands where they can stow immigrants that they don't See? want to. Uh, to they have places for they've, them. They've got their own situation there. All right, so Daniel, uh, I'd like to do a quick spoiler section here uh, before we uh, before we continue. But any final thoughts before we get into spoilers? I thought the setup was good. I thought the world building was was solid, if not fleshed out enough, but solid. Uh, corpses turning into plants was neat. Uh, I thought the uh, Lord Kitchener was, was was good. I thought the uh, Ian, Ian Wright was was uh, a good choice for that. He did a good job. I was bored by the film, but I don't think it was a bad film. I just think it wasn't a film for me because it made the UK look bad. And I am right as a true Tory uh, and as a real conservative, I was offended. Uh, I so two questions. Uh, one is, uh, well, have you seen the film Children of Men? First of all, yeah, a long time ago. Fair enough. This is also a film. Or this film also reminded me of Children of Men, and I think you would probably have similar objections to that one in retrospect because um, that one was also very much about. There's this horrific uh, dystopia here, and we only learn the barest of details about it. But there's at least a clear inciting reason for it. People can't have children anymore, so the entire world's going to shit because it has no future. Um, whereas uh, in this one, I think the – I don't know, dude. I dare say that the the two unspoken drivers of all of this are climate change and global, in, and global inequality, basically the rise of the new oligarchs. That's what's behind all of this. That's what's behind all of this in real life. And I, and I dare say – at a certain point, you don't even need to explain that anymore. That is just part of the reality in which we all live, in which a tiny number of people control all the wealth and the rest of us just dance on their puppet strings. Um, so that is what I think was underneath this film. And that is what I think the movie did a decent job of stewing about it. And we didn't need to explain every detail of that because what we had instead was these fundamentally human relationships going on here. So to that point, my second question is, what did you think of both the performances and the relationship between uh, Kane Robinson as Izzy and Jeff? I uh, Bannerman as Benji. I thought Izzy and Benji had good chemistry as a very much father and son duo. Uh, I, I, right. I I thought Benji in particular uh, seemed like a realistic kid going through grief and trying to find his place in a world uh, and trying to identify with clearly his father Izzy. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was a solid a solid performances by both and, and, and a solid pairing. I think it was good casting for both of them. Gotcha. I didn't care about anybody else. War Kitchen was cool, but I mean, he was definitely just being a DJ. Um, yeah, there's there's an entire subplot involving a teenage girl named Ruby that uh, Benji's got a crush on, which I do want to talk about. But I think we need to get into spoilers for that. Um, the other uh, the other piece of this though is um, I, I really I have more to say about the relationship between these two and how it evolves over the course of this. But I think what is interesting is the ways in which these two have such a clear lack of purpose at the beginning of this film. They're, they're both kind of just going through the day to day. They don't really have a clear place in society. So they don't really have a clear purpose in society. And I think that is maybe the reason why, you know, when you Google the kitchen, I always know I'm going to get an interesting uh, and kind of, uh, kind of slow burn drama. When I Google the title of a movie and I see that one of the suggested questions is what was the point of the kitchen? Um, 
I'm like, okay, we're just going to kind of stew in the reality of this thing for a while. And people are going to be like, well, why didn't they, why didn't they overthrow the entire civilization? Why didn't, uh, why did any of this change? I think a lot of things changed over the course of this. I think these two explored what, what responsibilities they could take on for each other, what relationships they could forge in this absolutely fucked up environment they're in. Um, I think there, there is something to that, but we do need to get into spoilers here for details. One last shout out here. I thought the, uh, just the, the, the look and feel of the film, look and feel of the tower block, they did a very good job of making it feel like a real place. I don't know how much this was done on set pieces or virtual sets, but uh, really quite an impressive uh, uh, structure and felt like a real place. Um, and I also quite like the music. Um, it's very, you know, it's very kind of atmospheric ambiance and kind of occasionally building to, oh, the shit is hitting the fan now. But this was from two musicians, Labyrinth, uh, who is an English uh, kind of DJ and electronic musician, and Alex Baranowski. Uh, and I, I quite liked the uh, musical score here as well. Um, a thing I rarely remember to call out in films, but I noticed several times in this one and wanted to uh, wanted to praise here. All right, from here on out, spoilers for the kitchen. Okay, so uh, Daniel, I I'm not gonna say Ruby was all that well established as a character. She's just a girl that Benji likes, but um, I do think that she served an important purpose here because, in the same way as we know that in Izzy's past, at some point he hooked up with Tony, who is uh, who was the woman who died at the beginning, who was Benji's mother, and then we know at some point he abandoned her or stopped seeing her or broke up with her or whatever. And uh, we know that that is that we're possibly seeing the beginnings of a repetition of that cycle as uh, as he starts to get close with this with this girl in his neighborhood. Of course, we barely get an, get eyes into their relationship. It's just they kind of like each other and want to kiss each other, and they're and ultimately they come running and are searching for each other when the police come raiding. Um, but there was a little bit of that going on. There was a little bit of that being a source of of Izzy not wanting to see his own son potentially repeat the in, repeat the same cycle that he just went through. Um, so there was that piece of it. But I also saw, I mean that that aspect of paying forward both kindness and cynicism. I watched that continue and develop between them over the course of this. So these two were bantering with each other, but like you really could see a a burgeoning affection between the two of them as well. Even as they both kind of didn't want to acknowledge their relationship because they kind of both knew that they couldn't really count on each other for anything. So that that tension was there throughout the film, and that did kind of carry it through for me. So when those two finally did have a moment of connection uh, toward the end there, I, I felt that. It still felt emotional to me. But uh, it sounds like you were fully checked out by that point. I wouldn't say fully checked out. I would say more like one foot checked out. You know, I was waiting for what was going to be the big thing, and the big thing was a raid. So should we talk? Well, there there were two things. There was a raid in which Lord Kitchener was killed by the police, uh, live on live on mic with everybody listening to him, which feels very familiar. Uh, no, no, he was apprehended and died in custody. Indeed, uh, through police brutality. Uh, that, that, no, I I didn't see any brutality. Did you? Lots of it, yes. Uh, but then we have the gang leader Staples, uh, who is. At this point, Benji is sort of in this gang, but also not in this gang, and he ends up joining them. They don their masks, they get on their motorbikes, and they go to raid the Upper Crusters, and they bust into a shopping mall, and they steal a bunch of jewelry, and then they also just bust into one of these these fancier apartment buildings and just start wrecking the place, and you kind of just see this middle-class family and their child cowering on the floor like, why us? Like, why, why you know, why, why'd you bust in here? And... and I think this this film does not make their crime sympathetic per se, but it does it does offer a clear explanation for why us. Well, the answer to why us is well, why us? You know, why are you up here and we're down here? Why are uh, you know why is it so much better for you than it is for for us? Why do they why do the police come into our buildings and 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 wreck the place for no reason? Why aren't we just allowed to live? Why were we born in debt, born to serve, born to be a crime, die and get replaced? With your morning barely passing for culture in the place where you live, you know we see them break into an absolutely teary rendition of how great thou art, which continues over this raid. And Staples bringing the fucking Old Testament wrath of God shit, breach for breach, raid for raid, eye for an eye. Uh, and uh, yes, it's just another cycle of violence, but it's also just society that is eating itself and is treating an entire subclass as disposable. And that was what I felt during that sequence. Okay, Captain Hamas, I heard enough, all right? Like, I get it. Yeah, people are 
subjugated and they want to rise up, blah, blah, blah. I, I could tell you why there's layers to these things. Some people have skills of value and some people do not. And <laughs> there are systems that oppress those so that you can't gain those skills. Well, and the ways in which our society assigns value to skills is entirely fucked up too. Like, yeah, uh, raise, raising children and educating and uh, educating the youth of tomorrow, that's not skillful. We don't need to pay those people or take care of them or enable them in any way. But uh, I, I, but, I uh, agree with what you're saying. In my preferred society, all of that would be fixed. There would also be no elections so I think I, I have a lot to offer. Well, it's also fair to say here that uh, none of the people who are propping up this the system that is depicted in this film are actually in this film. You know, we see the upper middle class here and we see the lower class here and we see them squabbling with each other. We don't see anybody who made this happen. We don't see anybody who's ordering the police raids. We don't see anybody, anybody's objectives. We don't see how the government functions. And that is context that I don't think would have made any of this better. So I don't see that as anything that was lacking from this film. It would have fundamentally made this less the story of what these people's lives are like there uh, in this place, in this horrible place where all these policies go to fail and die. To some degree, making the story about the people that are trying to make things better there is beside the point here. You know, we 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 could tell that story, and that would be a different movie. That would be a that'd be the fucking Aaron Sorkin version of this movie, I suppose. Um, this felt like something else, and I think that something else had value, even if even if you personally found it boring. Which fair enough. It could have used Jeremy Irons explaining that the hive needs to be tended, Correct. and uh, sometimes we need to go on raids to. Okay, fair enough. Yes, I think that would I right. would have solved all my problems. Like, oh, great, let's do that. Well, uh, Daniel, uh, any? I, actually, I'm curious. What did you think of the final scene of this film, which about which is about as dark an ending as I think they could have mustered here, short of watching them get murdered on camera by the police? I mean, that, it. <laughs> Those endings are fine when there's not a clear definitive, this is the ending, right? Where they leave the face of the characters up in the air. Sometimes that works well. Sometimes that doesn't work. In this case, because so little of the movie had been like fleshed out and in a lot of detail, the ending was fine. Do they just get apprehended by the police? Are they killed? What, like what happens to them? Are they forced to leave the kitchen? You don't know. You just have to kind of make up an ending in your head. Well, there's also a degree of does, how much does it really matter? Well, it matters for them, certainly. Well, and it matters what for it, your viewing experience, right? Like your interpretation of the story and what you come away I don't think there with. is any version. If you come away from this film thinking that there was a happy ending because they escaped this one police raid, that would not be a valid read on the film, in my opinion. But I, but I think that leaving it ambiguous as to whether they escaped the police raid or not, um, I think I think it was strongly implied the police bust into their apartment right as it cuts to black. But we don't know for sure. It could have been uh, that could have been anything. Um, but it doesn't really matter whether this one gets them or whether the next one gets them. Like there's a real sense of this place is doomed and so is everyone in it. And that is what is hanging over the film. And it's not a happy watch. And I don't think it's intended to be. No, it doesn't have like hopeful moments in it. Not really. Like aside from like their shared community, it, it's mostly just people getting tried upon and punched on. Uh, that's, and they're just trying to like survive day to day and they have nice, uh, you know, parties at night. So, Dan, I'm going to ask you to compare this to one other film, if you can remember this one. Ooh, that's hard platform or The Platform or El Oyo, oh, the uh, Spanish film that we saw where so there was the people. elevator of of people who were uh, getting getting food sent down to them. Now, that was one where it had an, an, an elaborate extended metaphor for capitalism, basically, but the metaphor was all there was. That movie made no sense. You said this film was not specific enough as to what was going on, or it was not specific. It didn't offer enough context as to what was going on. We could have gone full metaphor with this one and ended up with something like The Platform, where the, the reality of what's happening there doesn't really make sense or need to make sense. The reality of this place made perfect sense to me. This felt like a real place. This felt like a real future. And watching these people live in this shitty place, I found compelling in its own way. Um, but at no point was I thinking, like, how effective is this metaphor? I was just thinking, how horrible is this reality? And I think that's what the movie was going for. And I think to the extent that I'm judging it on its success at the thing that it set out to do and whether I think that pursuit had value, I think I'm going to say this one was a winner on both counts. Okay, that's fair. I, I think the metaphor was was pretty clear. And I think the performances were solid. I just wasn't gripped by the story. Fair enough. Well, that brings us to the end of our review of The Kitchen, which is available on Netflix right now. 
Daniel, welcome back to uh, the podcast for uh, New Year 2024. We uh, we will hope to uh, do a few more of these here. Uh, we took a month off there to uh, rest up after a uh, after quite a year of 2023, but uh, we are we are back and ready for more. Thank you for tuning in, Philmonk.net, and have a good night. Yeah.